is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Chicago is the city that works, but how could it work better? That's the question we're asking as we team up with the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government for a new series called Reimagine Chicago. Over the last year, we've seen a global pandemic, a historic election, and a national movement for racial justice, and they've all reshaped our world. So what if we changed too? We think now is a great time to reimagine how our city functions and how our systems and institutions could better serve residents. Over the next few months, we'll examine public safety, schools, and investment in Chicago and how they could work better for you. We kick things off this week with an examination of city government. Before we can talk solutions, first we've got to check under the hood to look at two pieces of the engine, the mayor and the city council. Tensions rising after Mayor Lightfoot asked for emergency powers for COVID-19 expenses. No. But it's high inappropriate for members of the city council to be council. using profanity. I believe that we should have the ability to appropriate those dollars and that not be strictly an executive. People of Chicago did not vote for unilateral decisions, no matter who they were, if it was the local alderman or the mayor. City Hall has seen its share of political heavyweights, scandals, characters, and corruption. But how much of that is due simply to the way that the council is set up and the particular setup of powers mayors have in Chicago? Joining me now is Dick Simpson. He's a political science professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He was also alderman for the 44th Ward from 1971 to 79. Professor Simpson, welcome to Reset. Thank you very much. Chicago City Council is made up of 50 aldermen, and we have a mayor that operates in what's known as a strong mayor system. What is a strong mayor system, and how does it work here in Chicago? So the systems vary across the country. We have a strong mayor system in that the mayor appoints all of the key committees or department heads of uh, city government and many of the agencies like the Chicago Park District. We started as a town in 1833. We became a city in 1837. We've changed the number of aldermen we've had. Uh, for instance, at the Civil War period, we had 15 aldermen. Um, later on, we had as many as 70 aldermen. So we've simply, we've never had a full city charter, but we've actually changed the structure through either state law or city council ordinance many times over our history. It's a matter for us to choose. So talk to us more about the powers that aldermen have uh, and how that compares to the powers that the mayor has? So the aldermen traditionally have been most concerned with services in their ward. They serve an ombudsman function. Uh, they make sure that the streets get swept and the curbs uh, are taken care of and that the streets are repaved and that the snow is removed and so forth. So the ombudsman function or the service function has been very important for both constituents and aldermen, and that's one reason we have 50 wards is that there are about 50,000 residents in each ward, and an alderman can be in charge of the services and making sure that they're properly delivered. However, the aldermen also have a legislative function, and that is to pass all the laws of the city. Uh, so that, it, you know, the fact that a, the speed limit is 30 miles an hour on a particular city street, that's because there's an ordinance or law passed by the alderman. Alderman Lafada is an aye. Alderman Hopkins. Aye. Alderman Hopkins is an aye. In addition, the aldermen have to uh, vote on the city budget. We have a uh, city budget that runs about 400 pages, about 200,000 line items. And the aldermen have approved each of those expenditures. Now, often they don't do a very good job of looking at those expenditures and making changes, but they could. When you were alderman those years ago, how did you feel about your lack of power when it came to making certain decisions or your inability to get things done? Well, uh, first of all, the reasons uh, there was more difficulty was a political reason. Uh, the city was controlled by the political machine of Richard J. Daley when I was alderman and later Michael Bolandic. That had more to do with uh, the problem, but I actually felt quite empowered. I offered um, hundreds of amendments to the city budget, dozens and dozens of new ordinances each year. And they were usually voted down by the city council, but as the problems accumulated over the years, those uh, recommendations got adopted. So nearly everything I advocated was uh, eventually achieved, and that was true for other minority aldermen 
like Linda Prey and Bill Singer and Marty Overman. Are there additional powers that you think Chicago aldermen should have? I think the oversight the aldermen actually do is very, very limited. Yes, if they get a complaint, they might approach the mayor and try and get a change or approach a department head, but the oversight function isn't very good. One thing that has improved is many more aldermen in this city council, since they were elected two years ago, are offering broad-ranging legislative proposals for the good of the city. The city council votes on about 3,000 pieces of legislation in a given year. Most of them are things like stop signs and parking meters in their individual wards. But these aldermen, after the rubber stamp era following Richard M. Daley, Rahm Emanuel, the Lightfoot administration has spurred more aldermanic action in the legislative area than in any time since Richard J. Daley except for Harold Washington, period. This is still a city of Chicago in the United States of America. That's right. And you don't have the right not to recognize me. And you don't have the right not to recognize me, sir. The gavel does not make you right, sir. The gavel does not make you right. Professor, take us behind the scenes of it. You didn't often see eye to eye with mayors Daly or Bolandic. So what did you have to do to push policies that you supported forward? Uh, We had to make a real fight on the city council floor and then win uh, media coverage and then public support uh, so that our ideas would prevail. We were in for the long haul. We lost the individual votes, but we won the war in the end uh, with Harold Washington's election in 1983 and 1987 and then Lori Lightfoot's election in uh, 2019 and still in office in 2021. We can't talk City Hall without talking about aldermanic privilege. Um, For those who don't know, tell us what that is and whether that's normal and whether other cities have it. So aldermanic privilege is that uh, aldermen can usually hold up permits and certainly can deny zoning changes in their own ward simply by a request to the appropriate department or a request that their colleagues in the city council vote whichever way they want on the particular proposals. Usually they're most often related to development, but they could be other permits. That has been a cause of abuse. Most of the current cases that are going to federal court, like those around Alderman Solis and Alderman Burke, have to do with the misuse of aldermanic privilege or aldermanic prerogative, as it's sometimes called. Uh, Professor, can you give more examples of of how these powers play out in real life, Uh, something that maybe you've observed with the Lightfoot or Emanuel administrations? So the way aldermanic privilege usually works is that a businessman will come to an alderman and ask for a zoning change or perhaps will ask that uh, the building inspectors uh, uh, not uh, visit their establishment or the health inspectors if they're a restaurant. And the alderman will agree to do that, and the businessman will, in an envelope, give the alderman $500 or more in a campaign contribution. In the case of Alderman Burke, it's alleged that what he wanted was a campaign contribution for Tony Preckwinkle of $10,000, and he wanted a business for his law firm, that his law firm would represent Burger King in all property tax issues in uh, Cook County. But it's a quid pro quo. You give me a bribe and I'll make sure you get your zoning change or your building ordinance and you'll be able to do the development you want. What do we need to know about how the strong mayor system has facilitated progress and hindered it? So the strong mayor system does have some advantages. It gets things done. One of the problems of our governments um, is that in Illinois we have 7,000 different governments with the power to tax. Uh, People in the city of Chicago pay tax, property taxes to seven governments, and if they live in a suburb like Oak Park, they pay to as many as 17 governments. So when there are that many different units of government, it takes um, the political machine or the political power of a strong mayor to override them and get something actually done. And that's the strength of the strong mayor system. The weaknesses is it becomes dictatorial and autocratic. It was particularly vivid in Mayor Richard J. term term of office, but with many of the other mayors, 
who follow Mayor Daly. Don't be telling anyone in Chicago he'll be stepped down or anyone else. Because as long as I'm mayor, no one will be stepped down. I resent and no one has to be stepped down. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be digging more into Chicago City Council and the role that aldermen play. Um, as we've talked about, you know, aldermen are sometimes thought of as mini mayors of their wards and, and less as true legislators. Yes, that's always been the problem. Um, I used to joke when I was in the city council that there were only five or maybe ten of us who could read the city budget. It's a complicated document. It takes effort. The number of aldermen who offer legislation before the Lightfoot administration was less than ten. That is, they all offered legislation for simple things in their ward, but citywide legislation for the betterment of Chicago was not something they were really doing. They weren't a legislator. Uh, now we have more legislators in city council, more controversy, and in general, I view that as a good thing. That is UIC political science professor and former 44th Ward Alderman Dick Simpson. Professor Simpson, thank you so much for talking with us and also for helping us kick off our Reimagine Chicago series. I'm delighted to do it. Today, we turn our attention to the mini-mayor of your ward, the alderman. Since Chicago was incorporated as a city in 1837, there have been aldermen in charge of wards, or legislative districts of the city. The system was put in place to make sure that each community has a seat at the table. Aldermen also have power on quality of life issues, from regulation and sanitation to making sure potholes are filled. So what's the history behind the city's aldermanic system? How has it taken shape over the years? And what can be done to make it more effective for the city and for you? Joining us now to discuss is Julius L. Jones. He is assistant curator at the Chicago History Museum. Julius, welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Julius, take us back to the term alderman. Where did that actually come from? Because these days I know it's a title that's very rarely used in the U.S. Well, the term alderman goes back to English common law, you know, in tradition, it was someone who was given province over their area and serving at the request of a chief executive or uh, in English times, a, a king or some monarch of that sort. So if we think about contemporarily here in Chicago, the mayor as sort of a king, the aldermen sort of serve as representing the interests of their uh, constituents to that king-like figure, in our case, the mayor. So yesterday we talked to Dick Simpson, who's the former alderman of the 44th Ward and also political science professor at University of Chicago, Illinois. Now, he said that the number of aldermen has changed throughout the years. Uh, during the Civil War, we had something like 15 aldermen. At one point, uh, before the 1920s, we had 70, and, and Chicago mm -hmm. now has 50, as you know, and, and some of them are quite oddly shaped, like the second ward, for instance, that resembles a lobster. So, <laughs> Julius, who's in charge of creating these boundaries, and what does that process look like? Part of the reason why they're so oddly shaped is because the aldermen themselves get to redraw their boundaries, and they have their own interest in making sure that they have particular constituencies, particular groups that allow them to maintain their role and get reelected. The only sort of governing authority is that, you know, as the census is completed every decade, a state law requires that the districts be re drawn to make sure they are evenly proportioned so that every alderman is representing, you know, the same amount of people. But that's really it. Um, in the 70s and 80s, there were lawsuits, particularly during the administration of Harold Washington, around the districts being drawn to undercount and underrepresent uh, racial and ethnic minorities. But that sort of systemic structural issue in a lot of ways has been corrected. And so you have wards that represent the racial and ethnic uh, constituency of their groups in terms of the aldermen who they elect to represent them. State law requires Chicago wards to be equitable, contiguous, and compact. Uh, but we often hear about how gerrymandering has prevented that from, from being the case. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of look at, you know, some of these wards, just like the 14th ward, and you can chase how its boundaries have changed over time since Alderman Burke has been in office, and you can see the boundaries moving in a very particular way. So you, you can watch these wards sort of change shape in a lot of ways, and, and there are, are, you know, a host of reasons for that phenomenon. But I think the primary one is, you know, political self-preservation. You know, if you get a say in drawing your own district, you're going to draw a district that I think allows you to continue to be elected um, whenever possible. And uh, during her 2019 campaign for mayor, Mayor Lightfoot called for an independent commission to redraw the map. I am absolutely in favor of an independent commission to draw the maps. And if I'm mayor, that's one of the key priorities that I'll push for. But there actually hasn't been any movement on this in the city council. Some aldermen have actually pushed back against the idea and the mayor hasn't really endorsed any plans to create an independent commission since taking office. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating issue. We sort of see this on a national level with congressional districts where some people are arguing that it should be an independent uh, process and that will make for a fairer process. But the jury is actually still out whether or not these independent commissions actually draw better districts. Certainly that motivation for political self-preservation may not be in effect. But what you definitely sort of see is the partisan, self-interested gerrymandering of districts that occurs anywhere that these districts are redrawn. People who have the authority to draw them tend to draw them in a certain set of interest. And the hope is that these independent commissions will remove that influence. But it's not exactly clear that the result ends up being a truly more representative form of government. Well, depending on who you ask, uh, aldermanic privilege can be a good thing or a bad thing. Here's a bit of Dick Simpson explaining what that is. Aldermanic privilege is that uh, aldermen can usually hold up permits and certainly can deny zoning changes in their own ward simply by a request to the appropriate department or a request that their colleagues in the city council vote whichever way they want on the particular proposals. Usually they're most often related to development, but they could be other permits. That has been a cause of abuse. Most of the current cases that are going to federal court, like those around Alderman Solis and Alderman Burke, have to do with the misuse of aldermanic privilege or aldermanic prerogative, as it's sometimes called. And it doesn't help that Chicago is often named one of the most, if not the most, corrupt cities in the country. Since the 1970s, 30 aldermen have been convicted of corruption. Julius, why do you think that is? I think that it has a lot to do with power and influence and right in the fact that if you really do want something done in your ward, you you have to go through your aldermen, right? And so absolute power corrupts absolutely in a lot of instances. So the alderman sort of becomes uh, the de facto boss of his ward in that that person is allowed to sort of play favorites and, and and pick the winners and losers, as it were. Those who support the aldermen, you know, get the permits, get the construction bids, um, and those who don't are sort of punished and denied those things. That is Julius L. Jones with the Chicago History Museum. Julius, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, Chicago's 2019 election cycle was historic in many ways. Mayor Lori Lightfoot became the city's first black woman mayor and first LGBTQ mayor, winning out over a crowded field of 13 other candidates. 14 candidates, the most ever in the race for Chicago's top job. And there will be a runoff between the top two vote-getters. Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot throwing out the full-court press to capture votes and new endorsements. They've been crisscrossing the city, trying to drum up every last vote. With a little more than 51% of the vote in, Lori Lightfoot leads with nearly 75% of the vote. We're at the Grand Ballroom here at the Chicago Hilton and Towers, where they are expecting an overflow crowd here of more than 1,600 people. It's already getting loud. We just heard chants of Lori as the polls closed at 7 o'clock. Today, you, 
did more than make history. You created a movement for change. And the city's aldermanic races yielded stunning upsets as a swath of younger progressive candidates beat out longtime aldermen. Patrick O'Connor, one of the most senior members of the city council, and Mayor Emanuel's floor leader and the interim finance committee chair, failed. In Daniel Espada turned 38 yesterday, unseated incumbent Proco Joe Moreno with a resounding margin, securing 28-year incumbent Joe Moore is out. Maria Haddon absolutely took it to him tonight. She finished with 64% of the vote, beating the incumbent by over 3,100 votes. Plus, Democratic Socialists won big. Five new members were elected to office that year, bringing the total of Democratic Socialists on city council to six, the most in Chicago in more than a century. The closest aldermanic race in Chicago this year is finally settled. 33rd Ward Alderman Deb Mel conceded a seat that's been in her family since 1975. Political newcomer Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez is the fifth Democratic Socialist to join the new council. But there's a lot more of us there that were not there before, which also means that people want change, that people want us there. Its chairman will be 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. We're going to move the conversation to the left. We're going to fight for those things that we were elected upon. I got in that race to push the conversation way to the left, and I just happened to be the person at the end to get to the left. So... The last voice you heard there was Alderman Jeanette Taylor. She represents the 20th Ward, which covers Woodlawn, Washington Park, Englewood, and back of the yards on the city's south side. And she joins us now to discuss what it's like to be part of city council and how she's reimagining the role. Alderman Taylor, welcome back to Reset. Thank you. Good morning. How are you all? Doing well. Thanks for being here with us. Also with us is Alderman Michael Rodriguez of the 22nd Ward. That includes much of Little Village and parts of North Lawndale and Sleepy Hollow on the city's southwest sides. And he was part of the progressive wave at City Hall. Alderman Rodriguez, thanks for making the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I want to give a shout out to my residents in Vidham Park and Leclerhurst as well. Awesome. Well, I want to get right into the conversation. Alderman Taylor, you're also a Democratic Socialist. So I'm curious how you viewed an alderman's role before you ran for and were elected to office back in 2019? So I view the alderman's role as people who make $150,000, who get great health care and free dental, and they mistreat the people that they're paid to represent. And I didn't want to get in the space to do that. I used to say, I don't get into politics, but politics is getting to all of us because you have people who don't have a clue at the legislation they're creating and how it hurts communities. And so I wanted to be an organizer in this space so that we organize around what people in our community want to see and what they want to be a part of. And I'm a part of a bunch of caucuses. The Black Caucus, of course, because I'm a black woman and I love Black Chicago. The Socialist Caucus, because I believe in public power. And the Progressive Caucus, because I want this city to progress. I'm also a part of the Women's Caucus because I'm a woman. And the women in this city definitely to show younger women how to do this job and they can be anything they want to be, just changing the dynamic. And so these caucuses are important because they help you belong and they help you find a space to talk about issues that are important to you. And to my community, they're all important. Alderman Rodriguez, what can you add to that conversation there? What were your thoughts about an alderman's role? So I think it's a great question. And I'd like to give you context. Here in the 22nd Ward, on the southwest side of Chicago, we've had an independent political organization since 1983, going on 38 years here. And I wasn't a part of the organization at its founding, but I certainly understand its history. Made up of a group of black and brown and progressive white individuals, lots of folks in the labor movement, and also the immigrant rights and women's rights movements, came together and fought against the local machine here in the 22nd Ward that uh, was dominant for years. And our founding president, uh, Rudy Lozano, ran for office, almost won or almost forced a runoff and was assassinated after his run. We believe it had a lot to do with his progressive politics, his thinking into the future. But our movement didn't stop. And we subsequently ran Jesus Chuy Garcia for alderman here in the 22nd Ward, and he won. And we subsequently have you know, won a number of the races, particularly in the last 10 years, bringing a more progressive representation to the southwest side. But really, it is about representation. 
you know, the, the way our organization started was garbage was being picked up in other wards twice a week, whereas we were getting garbage picked up every other week. And we knew we needed an alderman who was from the community and for the community. Alderman Taylor, as a longtime organizer, you're actually known for your role in leading a hunger strike that led to the reopening of Diet High School on the South Side. Um, I want to play a little bit of your testimony before the Chicago Board of Education back in 2015. I've been on a hunger strike for 10 days so that my kids could be educated. You all talk about parents don't participate and parents are not part of the process. I've been on a local school council since I was 19. I'm 40. Thursday, I'll, it'll be my 12-day hungry, and I'm going to be at an LSC meeting facilitating it. I should not be hungry in 2015 over a neighborhood high school that is supposed to belong to the community. You actually collapsed after testifying that day, and you were on strike for actually 30 days. Now, fast forward, you're the alderman of the 20th Ward. Mm -hmm. The last three aldermen before you were indicted for wire fraud, bribery, other charges. And you've said it was because they weren't listening to the community. How are you trying to do things differently? So I don't move without my community. I have a community development team that helps me decide what projects I give support to. I meet with them on a monthly basis. We're doing virtual because of COVID. I definitely allow the community to have it say so, and I'm listening. And I'm bringing groups of folks who've never worked together together. And so that's the organizer in me. And that's hard because everybody wants something different or and everybody don't see each other at the same level. Whoever I get to see on the street gets my personal cell number. And so how many electives do that? Not many. Do you think that you've been able to build trust with your constituents since being elected? Of course, because I, I go for my community. I go against the grain all the time. I'm not an elected that has a lot of friends. I wasn't friends with them before I got there. As a matter of fact, I cussed half of them out before I got to city council. As a matter of fact, I was banned from city hall. They had my picture up. Wow. So how funny is it I come back and the white shirt that is there says, hey, haven't seen you in a long time. What you doing here? And now you're you're part of the team. Yeah. And and he falls out laughing. I even got pictures of him putting me out of city hall. So it's bittersweet for me. Full circle. Alderman Rodriguez, based on your experience on city council so far, what do you think is working well with the system and, and what needs to change? Wow. Um, that's a loaded question. First of all, I just want to recognize Alderwoman Taylor. I, you know, I'm an admirer. I remember taking my then six-year-old daughter to knock on yep. doors for her in the runoff. And I, I got to admit, that spirit that you have is so energetic, and, like, I get a lot from it. I love working with you. Thank you. You know, on city council now, we've had a little bit of success moving the ball. I was very proud to be a part of legislation that mandated predictive scheduling early on in the tenure here. We've done some good stuff. But, you know, I, I'm a little frustrated at politics as usual. And I'll point to an example. Look at police oversight. We have groundbreaking legislation that's been put together by two amazing community-based coalitions in GAPA and CPAC. And, you know, that legislation can't see the light of day. You know, we, we've got a long way to go. I think there's been some good reforms. I, I don't think it's okay to be able to shake people down for driveway permits, as one of my neighboring aldermen has done in the past. I think, you know, that needs to be reformed. But we also need to be careful. I think that there can be overreach. The fact is local aldermen need to be held accountable by their local communities. So I I do believe in checks and balances. Just going after aldermanic prerogative will not do it. We need to have real checks and balances where community has the say-so as well. And there's a lot of engagement from community residents. That's Alderman Jeanette Taylor of the 20th Ward and Alderman Michael Rodriguez of the 22nd Ward. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now that we know what an alderman does, what is their relationship like with the residents they serve? Hello, my name is Debbie Prince. I've been a resident of Chicago for 28 years. My husband owns a business in the 47th Ward. My name is Bill. I live in Beverly in the 19th Ward. Our alderman is Matt O'Shea. My alderman is Thompson of the 11th Ward. I reside in East Hilton. My name is Mark. I'm calling from the 35th Ward. Carlos Ramirez Rosa is my alderman. I just wanted to talk about how all these new aldermen with no background 
we're really ruining communities and how when an alderman leaves, the new alderman is starting from scratch. We have a tradition of very attentive aldermen in our ward, in the 19th ward. Matt's kept that tradition up. Thompson carries Bridgeport in Chinatown, and East Tilton really is like his stepchild. Absolutely no regards for our area or concern. Carlos Ramirez Rosas doesn't act as uh, the manor lord, and that's really kind of drew me out and made me excited, actually, about politics and see that our representation in the ward is being executed in a fair and engaged democratic way. But joining us now to weigh in is Robert. He lives in the 34th Ward in Washington Heights on the city's south side. Hi, Robert. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Also with us is Barbara Stewart. She lives in the 24th Ward in North Lawndale on the city's west side. And I'm going to call you what folks know you as in your neighborhood. That's Miss Barbara. Thanks for being here. It's a beautiful day. Robert, I'll start with you. Tell us how you would describe your relationship with your alderman. I would say my relationship with my alderman, much like many of my neighbors, is slightly non-existent unless it's election time. Okay, so so that's the only time you hear from them? Yes. She would routinely mention that she has town halls at a local church on 113th and Hofstede, but they've been non-existent. And oftentimes when people would go, they're, you know, regular faces asking the exact same question with no real solutions or resolutions to any of those concerns. What kind of requests have you made? So I've asked for the past three years to have the street that I grew up on on to be repaid. It is extremely lumpy and with many, many, many potholes. I think that I remember as a kid, they would fill the potholes in and that would make it further lumpy. And so now here we have where those potholes have been broken or loose and they're worse than they were before. And we're talking about Carrie Austin here. That's your alderman. What are you hearing from others in your community? Do, do they have similar experiences when they've reached out to her? Yes, lots of other neighbors of mine have said they've gotten better results directly going downtown, calling the mayor's office, calling 311. But even real estate developers have uh, better chances of having conversations with other aldermen, other county elected officials and things like that. To her credit, she has quite a bit on her plate, a federal investigation, as well as Chicago Board of Ethics investigation, as well as, you know, she's a, she's a little older and, you know, has family concerns. Miss Barbara, your alderman is Michael Scott Jr. What's your relationship like with him? Well, you know, I'm a resident, but I'm also a participant. I seek an interaction with people who represent me so that they're representing me in things that I know about. So I have a face-to-face relationship. He's visible and transparent as far as I'm concerned. So he seems to be receptive and he does the things that I ask him to, or he tells me why or how or when, you know, I, I speak to him. You know, when, when I need something or want something or have a question. And just to piggyback a little bit off of something Miss Barbara mentioned, you know, when there's a social event or a ribbon cutting or a new this or new that going up in the 34th Ward, my alderman is Johnny on the spot. She really is there. And that's a great thing. But it's the other hard work that is required. I appreciate that Miss Barbara's alderman is transparent to give her a reason as to why or anything like that. Unfortunately, in our ward, we don't get that same transparency. Our perception of aldermen and precinct captains has changed over the past 40 years when aldermen and precinct captains were more involved in your community. You would have a relationship with someone that you felt heard your concerns, more importantly because they they have the exact same concerns as well. So, Robert, what do you think then needs to happen for for residents to be able to get the help that they need from their aldermen? It, It sounds like it starts with transparency. That's one route. Miss um, Austin is the only alderman I've known. I'm in my late 30s, uh, middle class, and for a lot of us folks in that demographic, we don't always have as much fungible time or disposable time. And when it's I can't come out and go to every social event to, to press flesh, I don't get anything. I think a resolution could be another elected official. Miss Barbara, what are your thoughts? You know, we have 
many, many wards here in, in Chicago and, right. and lots of listeners who are in the same boat as Robert and, and, and his community. What, what advice would you share with them about, you know, being able to get better help from, from their representative? You know what? I truly agree with what Robert was saying about, you know, him being in a different place in his life than me. And that's why now I can take up that mantle and go forth. You know, I know that it takes more than than one person, the alderman, to stand up for you. If we don't stand up for ourselves, our politicians are not going to service us the way we want to be serviced. And I really need some more participation from maybe, you know, the younger people to do that. I've been in this community over 50 years. I've seen the bad, and I don't want to miss out on the good because the good is coming. Yeah. That's Miss Barbara Stewart from the 24th Ward and Robert from the 34th Ward. Miss Barbara, Robert, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Thank you very much. Nice meeting you on audio, Robert. (laughs) Yesterday, we explored how city government runs in Phoenix, Arizona, what Chicago leaders could take away from its weak mayor system. Today, we go international, and we turn to my hometown for some ideas. I'm talking about Toronto, Canada, and you might be wondering, why? Well, it turns out Toronto and Chicago share several things in common. They were incorporated as cities in the 1830s. Both sit on the shores of the Great Lakes and boast rich industrial pasts. And they have populations between 2.5 and 3 million people. But a big difference? They're city councils. In a moment, we'll hear from two city councillors and a political expert about how Toronto politics work what lessons Chicago can learn. But first, joining us now to tell us more about what it's like living in Toronto is Dave Meslin. Dave, welcome to Reset. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Dave, you wear many hats. You're an artist, you're an activist, you're a community organizer. Can you tell us more about your experience living in Toronto? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to Chicago. We have about 3 million people here in Toronto and I'm really into city politics. I know people tend to focus more on our national politics or state level here, we call them provinces. But I think on a day-to-day basis, it's actually our city halls that really impact our lives. The things we interact with all the time, our our parks, our schools, our police, our, our roads, our libraries, daycares, you name it. All those decisions are made by the men and women who sit in our council or alderman seats. And I think it's something that most people overlook And that's something that I'm trying to work on all the time. How do we build a culture of engagement where people are actually involved in shaping the city around them? Which ward do you live in, Dave? And and talk about your relationship with your city councillor. Yeah, well, we've just gone through a huge change in Toronto. We had 44 councillors and we were unceremoniously chopped in half down to 25. So let me first say that I'm very jealous that Chicago has 50 I know that that's more than than most cities our size, but I think it's really important. If we're going to use the term local democracy, then you should feel that your councillor is local. And in Toronto, our councillors now, that's the term we use instead of aldermen, they each represent 120,000 people. There's nothing local about that at all. I mean, that's larger than most towns and villages in either of our countries. That is a lot. I'm really involved with my neighborhood group, and we're in touch with our city councilor all the time. We try and collaborate on issues. You know, we push back on things when when we need to. But I, I've learned, you know, I'm 46. So whereas my activist career started out by yelling in the streets and protesting, I've learned how to um, build relationships with both the bureaucracy and the politicians and and at least try and get things done that way as a first attempt. Well, for someone like you who's really connected within your neighborhood, give us a sense of what you're hearing from people in your community about how they view Toronto politics and and leadership. I'm an anomaly. Most people in Toronto, I assume it's similar in Chicago and any city in either of our countries, they almost completely tune out municipal politics. It's, It's not on their radar. Our voter turnout federally and at our provincial level is, you know, 50 to 60 percent. And municipally in Toronto, 
it's more like 40. And in our surrounding municipalities, it can go as low as 30 or even 25%. And I know that there's American cities where it can go even lower. There's a very common problem that we both have, which is that people aren't connecting the dots between the issues they care about and the decision-making processes that you know, affect their homes and their neighborhoods. We do have some really cool projects in our neighborhood right now. And I think those types of collective activity actually gives neighborhoods more political strength because when you know each other, you can speak with a common voice when the time arises. That's Dave Meslin from Toronto. He's an artist, an activist, and community organizer. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sasha. Now that we've heard from one resident about his relationship with his city councillor, what does a city councillor do exactly? And how does city council run in Toronto? Madam Speaker, the report talks about the gap in the Canadian benefit. Madam Speaker, just a uh, quick question. There's a lot sick. of uh, uh, pretty forward-thinking design in this uh, in this uh, uh, EA. You mentioned Yorkdale. I'm just west of you, and I have not been consulted on Yorkdale. So hopefully you'll update me on your Yorkdale project. Thank you. My Yorkdale project's not mine. I would agree that this has been debated by committee, debated by council on several occasions. On favor of waiving notice, Carrie. Now in a moment, we'll hear from Kristen Wong Tam. She's Toronto's city councillor for Ward 13, Toronto Centre, which covers the heart of downtown Toronto. But first, joining us for an inside look at the role is Gary Crawford. He is Toronto city councillor for Ward 20, Scarborough Southwest. And it's actually where I grew up. Hi, Councillor Crawford. Glad you could join us. I'm glad to be here, Sasha. So you are currently serving your third term as a city councillor. Can you tell us, what does a city councillor do? What a city councillor does, or a city council does, is determines and makes decisions on really how the the infrastructure of how a city works, similar to Chicago, Toronto, and, and Chicago are about the same size. So we make decisions on, you know, water, on transit, making sure your garbage is picked up. We're looking at ensuring that the roads are cleaned and rebuilt, all of the kind of municipal infrastructure and issues that a typical city would deal with. So we have 25 councillors along with a city mayor who are responsible uh, collectively for making the decisions on really how the city runs and works. And Councillor, Scarborough Southwest is, is very diverse. Can you just tell us a bit more about your constituents? Yeah, so Scarborough Southwest is in the city of Toronto, out in the east part of the the Toronto by the Lakes. It is what we call the Scarborough Bluffs area. So it's about 110,000 people, very mixed incomes, beautiful areas down on the lake. You have some beautiful spaces and spots, of course, in Chicago. But we also have areas of poverty and um, real need in the ward. And uh, you've got a large immigrant community as well. Yeah, I mean, Toronto, in fact, uh, similar to Chicago, is a very diverse city. We actually look at ourselves as probably the most diverse city in Canada, but maybe in all of the world. So we we recognize the diversity. We celebrate the diversity. Challenges, of course, come along with that kind of uh, diversity, but the the cultural differences that we have, we enjoy. Uh, And my ward in particular, you know, when you're looking at uh, Bengali, Hindu, Sikh, there's a whole variety, Chinese, there's a whole variety of people who we represent. And as I said, most of the time it works out well, but we do have the similar challenges to a city like Chicago when you're looking at equity, uh, when we're looking at racism. It's all there, and yeah. uh, we do our best to try to uh, manage them. Well, later in the program, we're going to hear from a politics expert about how Toronto politics compare with Chicago politics. Chicago's uh-huh. got 50 wards. Some of them are very strangely shaped, you know, with aldermen who are more like mini-mayors than legislators. And Toronto's uh-huh. city council recently went from 47 wards to 25. What kind of impact do you think that had? Well, two things. I think when you're looking at the decision-making process, so when you're looking at the decisions that are made by council, you have less politicians, so you have less people who are debating, who are you know potentially grandstanding. So the actual work at the city council is much more streamlined. In fact, I think we actually work better as a council when we're looking at 
consensus when we're looking at trying to figure out, you know, where we generally, um, you know, position to make a decision. So I see that working reasonably well. Where the challenges are is, of course, we now have constituencies that, in my particular case, 110,000 people, which means we have considerable amount of people contacting our offices about drainage on the sidewalk, speed humps on streets. So I find myself as a representative, I've never been busier where I am out constantly meeting individuals and, and residents uh, because they, there's an expectation, Sasha, uh, on municipal government in Canada and Toronto that you reach out to your federal counterparts, your provincial counterparts, but it's the municipal people. There's an expectation of, you know, wanting direct contact with me. So on Fridays, I spend pretty much the entire day just meeting with residents and talking with them. We're at the other levels of government, not as much. So our workload has increased uh, substantially. You're also Toronto's budget chief. So from your perspective, Is there anything that you think needs to change or improve about the way that city government operates in Toronto? Yeah, and I think similar to Chicago, when you look at the powers of the City of Toronto and all municipalities, our biggest challenge is just the legislative influence that the provincial government has over the municipalities all across Ontario, but of course specifically the City of Toronto. So the provincial government really controls a lot of what we do. We always are continually going up to the province, asking them for permission after permission to do things. And that's, I think, one of our biggest challenges, especially when you're looking at us as a large city. We're the fourth largest city in North America, similar to Chicago. But when you're looking at the largest city in all of Canada, we do not have the same sort of decision-making powers that a province would have. Like, we are larger than a number of provinces in Canada. We are actually still controlled by the province. So you look at the economic impact that the city of Toronto has in our area, and in Canada, it's huge. We still have to be going up to the province, almost asking, you know, for many different things, and it just doesn't make sense. I appreciate you breaking that down for us. That's Toronto City Councillor Gary Crawford of Ward 20. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Let's head over now about 20 miles southwest to Ward 13, Toronto Centre. Kristen Wong-Tam represents that ward and she joins us now. Councillor Wong-Tam, welcome to Reset. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. We just spoke with Councillor Crawford, who is serving his third term, and you're also serving your third term. So tell us what it means to you to be in this role. Um, well, I mean, the city of Toronto is a, is a fairly large city. I'm sure Councillor Crawford has uh, gone through some of those statistics. But he and I represent two different parts of the city. I represent the most urbanized part of the, of the downtown core. So if you can think of your major downtown malls, your main street of, of any major city, those are my catchment areas. I've got some really dynamic neighborhoods. It's also known as the downtown east, which brings us a combination of two things. One is incredible wealth because I represent the financial district, all the bank towers, but also incredible poverty. We have some of the largest concentration of people without housing, all within the same catchment area. You talk about the diversity of Toronto. Of course, I know it having been raised there. Um, you know, Half of the population of the city of Toronto is non-white, yet 90% of the city council is white. Here in Chicago, the the city council is making strides in its representation of Latino and and black communities. But there has only ever been one Asian-American alderman. And and because of the way the wards are are shaped and gerrymandered here, Chinatown is actually not represented by a Chinese-American in city council. So what do you make of the lack of representation and diversity in city politics, both in Toronto and here in Chicago? Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it is, 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 I think, structural barriers. So, therefore, who actually has access to, you know, political power largely depends on your access to housing, your ability to maintain a, a stable workplace. You need to have a lot of supports around you before you can actually jump into the electoral process, especially as a candidate. And those barriers exist many times more over if you happen to be a racialized person or if you're a woman, if you're an immigrant that speaks with an accent, you're a person living with a disability and so forth. 
for the first two terms of my time at city council, I was the only racialized woman to sit on city council. I'm the first out lesbian non-binary person to have been elected in the history of the city of Toronto, and I would love some additional company. But in order for that to happen, we need to make sure that there's more opportunities for women, for LGBT people, for racialized people to actually advance in those electoral races. So based on your experiences, what would you say are some of the strengths of Toronto City Council? It's interesting because I think, you know, unlike our upper levels of government, and in our case in Canada, we've got provincial governments and, and obviously national federal governments, where it's divided into party systems. So you either pick a color and pick a team. As government officials at the local level, you are in office and you are in government because technically there is no opposition. So you may cast a vote against something or for something and you're held accountable to your voters, but really decisions made by the municipal government of the day, you wear it whether you support it or not. Mm -hmm. So even if you sit as an elected official, you may have had a different opposing opinion as opposed to your mayor. Uh, And in this case, you know, our mayor is a conservative mayor. He is big business, has major shares and an advisor to a major telecoms communications company. But he's also civic minded when it comes to smaller progressive issues. But, you know, we don't oftentimes see eye to eye on on issues, especially when it comes to, to big business. Given your relationship that you described with Mayor Tory, do you feel that the weak mayor system in Toronto works in your favor? (laughs) <laughs> so, so I guess uh, it's, it's a great question. So uh, because I'm on the outside of the mayor's team, I would probably say it, it works probably better, right? So the mayor has one vote in the city of Toronto, but what he does have uh, and what every mayor has is the, the body of influence. So he has the ability to appoint chairs of standing committees. Sometimes these are lauded positions that people want, and it means that it gets curry favors. As someone who's not in the mayor's executive, I actually get to speak my mind and I can just speak on behalf of my constituents. But does it help me that the mayor has now shifted to the ground that I used to occupy, such as homelessness and poverty? Absolutely, because now he's singing from, I believe, the songbook that many people have been singing from. But of course, like everything else, uh, when you're in a position of power, people are going to want you to move uh, faster. They're going to want you to do more. And that's no different than the advocates on those issues. They want me to do more. They want me to do faster. And of course, I turn around and say, absolutely, we've got to get it done. And I'll need the mayor's support, which is now coming along. That's Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam of Ward 13. Councillor Wong-Tam, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here and, and all the best to everybody. Hopefully we'll see you on the other side safely. So how do legislative politics in Toronto compare with how things work here in Chicago? And could those systems be instructive for our city? Well, on the line with us to discuss is Meyer Simiatiki. He's a frequent media commentator in Toronto on municipal matters. And he's a retired professor emeritus at Ryerson University, where he specialized in urban politics. Fun fact, Ryerson is my alma mater. Meyer, welcome to Reset. Delighted to be with you. Wonderful having you on the program, Meyer. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Chicago and Toronto have a few things in common, you know, from their population size and location along the Great Lakes to their industrial pasts. But there seems to be big differences in how legislative politics work in both of these cities. For one, Toronto has a weak mayor system and Chicago has a strong mayor system. So can you just talk about that difference? Yeah, it makes a huge difference, and and so you've captured it really nicely. Uh, You know, the head of council in both cities is the mayor, elected at large across the entire municipality, and working with other council members who are elected in smaller jurisdictions and constituencies in wards. The Canadian system of municipal government is widely recognized as being a weak mayor system. Really, it means that the mayor is more like another member of council than unlike another member of council. So the the kind of assumption in the Canadian system is a mayor is as successful as their persuasive skills or depending on a mayor's bullying powers. And I'm thinking of a past mayor of Toronto, who your listeners may recall, (laughs) Rob Ford. I definitely remember him. Or depending on a mayor's bullying powers, 
that, that's what it comes down to. You know, can a mayor rustle up a majority of votes on every single issue that comes before council? So it's a much more unpredictable, it's a much weaker system of municipal government. And yeah, that has implications for the way politics work in Toronto. And Chicago has 50 gerrymandered wards that are oddly shaped, while Toronto has 25 block wards. But that wasn't always the case. Yeah, so this is important. I took a look at the electoral ward map of Chicago. Man, it looks like a snakes and ladders board. (laughs) Like, it's bizarre. Like, stuff is flying in all kinds of different directions, and it really looks like somebody put a lot of thought into how can I make this picture as messy as possible for some motive that I've got in mind here. So here's the story on Toronto. The shape and size of wards really, really matters. And the best example of this in the Toronto case goes back to the 1960s and 70s when Toronto, like many North American cities, was dealing with population growth. And Toronto in the early 1960s had what we called strip wards. They were literally long strips, almost like your longest finger digit, Mm -hmm. just starting at the lake. And in Toronto's case, Lake Ontario is our southernmost position. So wards would start at Lake Ontario and then in very thin strips stretch all the way north in the city of Toronto. And so what that meant was that the central city, which is generally speaking where working class where older neighborhoods were desperately trying to hang on as stable inner city neighborhoods, they didn't have a voice of their own because inevitably, like in a strip ward, the people who tended to get elected were those with more money to run, higher visibility profile, and that ended up being people in kind of the suburbs who were further north. So in about the mid-1960s, Toronto shifted to block wards. And the idea was, let's create wards that are more communities of interest, like where you have more of a defined and predominant kind of a population, whether it's by income, whether it's by race, whether it's by ethnicity, mother tongue, etc., And that laid the basis for all of the downtown councillors being elected to defend the stability of, of central city neighborhoods. And so the geography really matters. What kind of impact would you say that the change from strip wards to block wards had on residents and communities and on the Toronto ward system as a whole? I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that it was revolutionary in terms of giving much more of a voice to central neighborhoods in the downtown also had a kind of hipster educated students professoriate in that downtown core. And it gave them a political voice that they hadn't had before. It kind of shifted the weight from City council being controlled by a combination of small business owners and suburbanites to city council suddenly being a voice for urbanists, for people who wanted a dynamic central city, which certainly was going to include homes and residences, not just a central business district. And so for a long time, Toronto had the reputation at a time when North American cities were, especially American cities, were in trouble in the 70s and into the 80s. Toronto had the nickname of the city that works because it had preserved its neighborhoods. It hadn't run roughshod. And a lot of that really came from something as, in a way, simple as changing the word geographies. So, Meyer, what do you think is working in Toronto politics and What could Chicago learn from that? What I would argue is institutional change of decision-making structures isn't the end-all and be-all and the solution to every governance problem. In other words, strong mayor, weak mayor, the geography of wards, institutional arrangements can solve everything. What's more important, I would say, is 
having mechanisms in place that allow for public engagement, public voice, public input. And that can happen in so many different kinds of ways that I think it's a mistake to think that the solution to everything is only redraw the map. Because in some ways, I think some of the greatest changes in Toronto have come about because of citizen participation and citizen engagement. So I would say in a way that the solution lies in changes in emphasis on giving voice to residents, which certainly can include some institutional arrangements like making sure that every voice is heard. And if you've got a screwball kind of a map electorally that elects your councillors, the result of that is you're not hearing all voices, and that's a problem. That's Meyer Semiotiki with Ryerson University. Meyer, thank you so much for breaking that down for us.